Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about two blokes who, uh, well, look, it's probably fair to say that they just saved the entire world. I don't think that's too much of a stretch, as you'll discover as we get into this episode. Um, each of these two blokes, uh, in a separate incident, they never met, uh, Vasily Arkhipov and Stanislav Petrov, they stopped the launch of nuclear missiles during the Cold War. Now, had these blokes not intervened and had these missiles actually been fired, it's overwhelmingly likely that each incident would have uh, would have resulted in a, in a large-scale nuclear war and rather than you know sitting comfortably listening to a two-bit history podcast, you'd be trading bottle caps for bits of fried cockroach for your dinner, probably. Humans are super, super dumb. And nothing highlights this better than just how close we've come to destroying ourselves as a species. We've managed to avoid it so far, but we've developed the capacity for self-destruction before fully developing the capacity to prevent it. So it might just be a matter of time, really. In any case, we're going to talk about the times that we came closest to blasting ourselves back to a uh, nuclear weapon-induced Stone Age today. And, uh, and let me tell you, there have been more than you'd think. Two in particular, as I say, two astonishingly close calls, only averted by these two blokes I mentioned. Um, so we'll have a proper chat about those incidents, and we'll get, a, we'll get across a, a bunch of other ridiculous examples of, of, of Cold War brinksmanship here. So we're not going too far back today. I don't have to go too far back to what I guess really might be living memory for some of the older listeners here, uh, back to the 1940s with the advent of nuclear technology, of course, uh, during the Second World War. As I'm sure you're aware, the nuclear bomb was developed and then finally deployed during the Second World War with US President Harry S. Truman ordering the nuclear bombing of both uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in order to force Japan to surrender. Now, those two bombings are, even today, the only times that nuclear weapons have been used in war, and, and between them they killed as many of, as 226,000 people, so a huge, death, staggering death toll, and, of course, near destruction, near total destruction of, of two cities as well on top of that. So after the end of the Second World War, however, we move into the Cold War with the US and, uh, and the Soviet Union, the USSR, vying for position as world superpowers. And uh, the problem is here, 
both of these nations, of course, they've got nukes. Both these countries have nukes and, and have to do this sort of ridiculous dance uh, with, with one another called brinksmanship. That's what I was referring to before. Because both nations have the capacity to utterly destroy each other, the concept of mutually assured destruction prevented both the, USA, the US and the USSR from full-scale attacks against each other because the consequent retaliation would then destroy the aggressor. So it was it was very much a situation where if you attack me, I'm going to attack you back and we're both going to end up dead on the floor. And that, that was the way that it, it went there. Well, that was the way that it could have gone, I should say. And that was what very much uh, informed and guided a lot of politics at the time. And as a result of this, as a result, both nations, they pushed each other to the brink, hence brinksmanship, uh, of war, the brink of war, while trying to get the other one to back down without actually ever properly getting underway uh, with, you know, fully armed conflict, as this would essentially mean the end of civilization as we know it. So it's a very, very interesting pe- period of history, but also you know, very, very terrifying as well, because the amount of dick waving that went around when you're trying to force the opponent to back down very nearly wiped us out, and and more than once, as you'll discover. Bertrand Russell actually uh, very wisely pointed out that it was just one big game of chicken, uh, with both the US and the USSR doing everything that they could to avoid losing face, while also avoiding blowing up the Earth, which is, I guess, a, a secondary consideration most of the time. Anyway. What I'm trying to say here is that during the Cold War, particularly towards the beginning during the 1960s and uh, closer towards the end, around 1979 onwards, uh, political tensions were extremely high between the US and the USSR, and both nations were, you know, standing on top of on top of a huge pile of nukes, flexing like two bloody oiled-up strongmen at a bodybuilder competition. They really weren't there to muck around, and uh, this sets the stage for us to talk about just how close we came to a nuclear Armageddon, and amazingly, just how many times. Uh, we came this close to uh, a nuclear arm again. So let's get to it. With the Cold War in full swing by the 1950s, right, we're going going back to 1956. We have our first ever real nuclear emergency between the US and the USSR. There are probably other ones that might broadly fall into that category, but this this is the first major one at least. And it was part of the Suez Crisis, which you may have heard of. It was when Britain, France and Israel invaded Egypt to seize control of the Suez Canal. Now, this invasion was, of course, a total disaster for the invading coalition, despite their military victory. They, They beat the Egyptians, but... Egypt just blocked the canal, made it useless, even after the invaders had captured it. And the US, the USSR and the UN all told these uh, the, the invaders, the French, the, the British and the Israelis, to back off, which they were then at that point rather shamefacedly forced to. And, and so, of course, it goes down as one of the, one of the greatest embarrassments in, in especially British history as the sun definitely started to set on their idea of world, of world domination there. Um, before this, right, before the end of the uh, the Suez Crisis, however, on the 5th of November in 1956, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, which we're going to talk about a fair bit today, so you'll have to remember that, NORAD, received no fewer than four warnings, right, that the USSR was preparing an attack during the Suez, Suez Crisis. Now, this wasn't this wasn't completely unreasonable, as the USSR had threatened to use uh, conventional weapons, non-nuclear weapons, on the invading coalition in support of Egypt. Um, but uh, should the USSR end up attacking like this, then it might result in a retaliatory uh, nuclear attack from NATO, as the US sought to uh, uh, protect its allies in, in France, Britain, and of course uh, Israel. So, no rad gets these four different reports that indicate that the USSR were getting on the front foot and preparing for a, a large-scale uh, attack here. So the, here are the four warnings they get, right? Number one, a Soviet fleet 
had been spotted moving through the Dardanelles. Number two, a British bomber had been shot down over Syria. Number three, a hundred Soviet jet fighters were mobilising over Syria as well as this uh, this British bomber that had been shot down. And number four, unidentified aircraft had been detected flying over Turkey. Now, all of this very worrying stuff, especially, you know, when tensions are already very high because of the Suez crisis, and the US, they scramble to put together a response to it. Now, luck- luckily, while the US are, you know, getting ready to uh, to formulate their response, whatever it was going to be, luckily, further investigation is done into all of these four reports. And uh, eventually the US decide not to make uh, any kind of strong response because uh, they learned that these uh, four, you know, very worrying reports uh, were actually in order, right? So number one, uh, the Soviet fleet that was moving through the Dardanelles, just a fleet on routine exercises, nothing nothing special about that. The British bomber that had been shot down hadn't been shot down. They'd just been forced to land due to mechanical problems. It had been forced out of the sky because of that, so nothing untoward there. Um, the 100 Soviet jet fighters were actually just a small fighter escort uh, that was escorting the president of Syria back from a visit uh, to Moscow, so nothing to worry about there. And the last one, the unidentified aircraft that were flying over Turkey, if you'll believe it, these unidentified aircraft were a flock of swans. So we dodged a bit of a bullet there, I think it's fair to say, and luckily didn't start the Third World War because of a flock of Turkish swans. So, good on you there. We're certainly off to the right start anyway, doing a little bit of research before uh, pressing that big red nuclear button. Anyway, we now move into the 60s with our first uh, near miss of the decade, I guess. Well, again, there's, this list isn't exhaustive. I'm just picking either the good ones, the amusing ones, or the or, or the ones that are perhaps a little bit more a little bit more serious. But the first one we're going to talk about here uh, is actually less about brinksmanship and, and flexing and more about well, a U.S. aeroplane just kind of falling out of the sky. On the 24th of January 1961, a a U.S. B-52 bomber, it sprung a fuel leak in the air above North Carolina. Um, And while it was actually trying to go into a holding pattern, almost completely ran out of fuel just then and there like that and began to uh, descend, first uh, controlled by its eight crew and its pilot, and then uh, in, a, in a totally uncontrolled descent. So it's it's starting to, you know, gyrate and, and spin around and actually starting to disintegrate in midair. Now, five of the eight crew are able to bail to safety. The other three, unfortunately, they don't make it and they die in this, uh, in this very unfortunate incident here. But as the plane, it spirals, it's spiraling down towards the ground, it, it crashes into the North Carolina farmland below. Now, Obviously, just a plane crash at this point, so why are we talking about it here? Well, I'll tell you. This B-52 had two nuclear bombs on board, and they fell to the ground as well, both about 250 times more powerful than the ones that were dropped on Japan. Now, obviously, they didn't detonate. You would probably have heard about it if North Carolina had been reduced to a smoking irradiated crater, but you won't believe how close one of these bombs was to going off. According to a recently declassified document that was written in, written in 1969 by a bloke named Parker F. Jones, right? He revealed in this declassified document that one of the bombs, on one of the bombs, three of the four safety mechanisms that prevented the bomb from going off had failed out after, after it had, fell, after it had fall, fallen out of the plane. In the words of Jones himself, one simple dynamo technology low voltage switch stood between the United States and a major catastrophe. We are talking about a single crossed wire, right? Ultimately resulting in a nuclear explosion 
in the United States itself, in North Carolina. That's how close that's how close we were. Obviously, this wouldn't have then resulted in a nuclear well, who knows, to be honest. Maybe it would have, maybe it would have, after all. But it probably wouldn't have resulted in nuclear in a nuclear war. But all the same, that's how close it, it seems to be. There seems to be some debate as to whether this is exactly the case. There's arguments that the bomb would have may have not gone would have gone off fully and may have had a smaller explosion, but all the same. I mean no matter how you look at it, it was a bloody close shave. This whole, uh, the you know, this 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 incident with a B fifty two falling out of the sky with two nuclear bombs on it. Anyway, next up, it's the night of the fourteenth of November in nineteen sixty one when all of a sudden Strategic Air Command headquarters lost all communication with NORAD. This is a big problem because it means all the top brass at SAC didn't have access to NORAD's early warning systems that would trigger if the USSR launched missiles at the US. Now, these systems, they were monitored at three different locations, uh, what was called Ballistic Missile Early Warning System Sites, or BMUs. There was one in Greenland, there was one in, in Alaska, so in the United States itself, and also one over in the United Kingdom in Yorkshire as well. So what was worrying, what was even more worrying about the fact that the BMU's uh, sites had gone dark here uh, is that SAC was linked to these three separate locations by independent communication channels that had backups using regular telephone lines. So immediately, when all of the lines of communication fail simultaneously, right, they assume it can't be a coincidence. At the SAC, they assume it's it's foul play from from uh, from the from the Soviets. They reckon it might be a, an attack on the U.S. communication to prevent them from responding to an incoming missile attack. So as a result, the SAC they ready the nuclear capable bombers for immediate deployment the engines fire up and they're ready to fly down the runway and get it done while they try to figure out uh, what is you know what has just happened here so the sac they're getting ready to roll out for a nuclear apocalypse essentially while still trying to ensure that the communication failure wasn't a coincidence they did this by radioing another bomber there was a b-52 on patrol above greenland and it was able to contact a bmu site the, the bmu site that was in greenland there and confirm that there was no impending attack that you know there had been nothing that had been uh, you know had been failed to communicate during this uh, this communication blackout there so luckily the, the site in greenland they confirmed yep there's no impending attack Whew, the you know big sigh of relief the nuclear bombers they're whacked back in the hangars and the people at the sac and the world at large i guess unknowingly yep again breathe a big sigh of relief there they've uh, we've we've uh, we've dodged another bullet so as it were but what caused the disruption you might be interested to learn well Despite all of these apparently independent communication lines, the end signals were all routed through a relay station in Colorado. And at this relay station, so all of the all of the signals coming in from BMUs, even though they're supposed to have built-in redundancies and, and, and ways around any kind of system failure, they're all coming through one station in Colorado. And at this station, one of the switches had failed. Just one of the switches had prevented all of this uh, all of these you know, these signals from coming in, and there was no backup. And this relay station, by the way, was run by AT&T, who had assured the government that there would be built-in redundancy, you know, to all of its communication channels to avoid failures like this. So the next time your AT&T bill arrives and you're, you know, you're bloody ropeable because they've done you with extra charges or whatever, just remember that they're seasoned experts with around six decades experience at diddling people and something as trivial as a nuclear apocalypse isn't going to stop them from cutting corners. So that's a good thing to keep in mind. One of the, one of the important lessons of history. Anyway, 
We come now to one of the headline acts. We come to the story of Vasily Arkhipov, who, again, as I say, is one of the heroes of this episode. Arkhipov was a, uh, a Russian vice admiral aboard a Soviet nuclear-armed submarine, the B-59, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, the Cuban Missile Crisis is another, another topic entirely and probably deserving of its own episode, in all, in all honesty. Um, but the long and the short of it is that it's probably the closest we've ever come to nuclear Armageddon, as you'll discover. Arkhipov is the uh, the second in command on the B-59 uh, under Captain Valentin Savitsky, and they're, uh, they're prowling around the international waters near Cuba there, and disaster strikes for the B-59 when a US naval squadron discovers them and starts blasting down depth charges towards them, trying to force them to surface. Now, because of its depth, right, the B-59 is cut off from communication with the outside world. They've, 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 they're way out of radio uh, distance to Moscow there, and as they continue to dive further, Further down, they actually can't pick up on the local US uh, local broadcasting that's been done on radios there. So they don't know the crew aboard the B fifty nine. They don't know if war has actually finally broken out as as a result of this. Uh, you know the, ex- the extreme tension of the Cuban Missile Crisis. For all they know, that's what these depth charges might be. They might be the opening salvo, the opening shot of World War Three. So after diving deeper to avoid these depth charges. Captain Savitsky, he calls over Arkhipov and the uh, the submarine's uh, political officer, whose whose name was Ivan M- Maslenikov, and he says, "Listen to you, blokes. I reckon there's a war up top, and and so we're going to launch a nuke. It's as simple as that." Without specific approval from Moscow, uh, the protocol was that all three officers had to unanimously agree to launch this nuclear weapon. Now, this was a a special power that had been given to these uh, to these submarines that that were prowling around in in you know the, the waters near Cuba because of their distance from Moscow. They were actually able to uh, to act autonomously, but it did require. As I say, the the unanimous approval of all of the all three of the officers aboard this submarine. Although this was unique, just to the B fifty nine. Usually, on all the other ones, it was just the captain's decision and the approval of the political officer. But the B fifty nine was a weird exception because of Vasily Arkhipov. Despite being Savitsky's second in command, Arkhipov was the commander of the entire flotilla of all of the submarines, all the Soviet submarines that were around Cuba, and his equal overall rank to Savitsky means that he also has to approve. So, Savitsky, he talks Maslenikov round. The political officer is on board. He wants to fire the nuke as well. It's now two against one, with Arkhipov holding it out against the other two, and it is a bloody horrible situation, I can tell you that. The batteries on the sub uh, are running low, air conditioning has failed, and Savitsky is frothing at the idea of of nuking the the US. Apparently, this is what he said. He apparently said, we're going to blast them now, we will die, but we will sink them all. We will not become the shame of the fleet. So that just goes to show exactly how ready this guy is to get up and, uh, you know, and fire one of these, fire off his, his nuclear torpedo here. Arkhipov, however, refused to budge. He simply wouldn't authorise the firing of a nuclear torpedo aboard the B-59, reasoning that the US ships above had probably just fired off the depth charges to force force them to surface and not as an act of war. He also saw quite clearly that the stinking hot 50 degree temperature in the submarine, along with the high carbon dioxide levels, were probably interfering with the judgment of the captain and the political officer. And so, it, I mean, think about this. It is astonishing that he was able to keep his cool and maintain a rational outlook on things considering the circumstances, but this is what he did. Slowly but surely, he persuaded Savitsky that the Third World War had not begun, and everyone just just chill out, we'll surface safely, we'll find out what's going on, and we'll make a proper decision once we've got enough data. And at long, long last, Savitsky changed his mind, and a nuclear catastrophe was averted as he resurfaced in the B-59, and he discovered that, 
as it turns out, an all-out war wasn't, in fact, going on above them. But just think what would have happened if Arkhipov hadn't been there on that submarine. Nothing would have stopped, under, under Soviet protocol, nothing would have stopped Savitsky from firing his nuclear torpedo at the US ships above. And given the unbelievable tension between the US and the USSR, a nuclear attack on any scale, even if, if it were just a nuclear torpedo fired on some ships, it would have been very, very likely to trigger, trigger an all-out nuclear war between the US and the USSR. And you don't need me to tell you what that would have meant for the world. I mean, this, okay, you know what's amazing about this story as well? The US ships that had fired the depth charges, they had no idea that they were firing on a nuclear-capable submarine, and they didn't find out until 2002. They thought they were just harassing some normal run-of-the-mill, uh, you know, enemy submarines deep down there in, in at the bottom of the sea, but they were firing on a nuclear-capable submarine, and they had no ideas, and no idea, and no one found out for 40 years, hardly anyone knew just how close we'd come to a full-scale nuclear war and you know, obviously the consequent global apocalypse that would come with it. and Or, much more importantly, how it was just one incredibly courageous man that stood in the way of it. After this discovery in 2002, one of JFK's former advisors, a bloke named Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., he said this, This was not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. Vasily Arkhipov died in 1998, four years before the world found out about his brave and unyielding heroism. But today he deserves every inch of recognition for being someone who, in the words of the US National Security Archive uh, director Thomas Blanton, saved the world. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss now there were a few other close shaves in the 60s before we move on from this decade in 19 i want to talk about a couple of other things that happened 1965 a huge power outage in the u.s caused uh some nuclear attack detectors to malfunction putting the u.s on high alert for an incoming attack now again luckily the uh the incorrect signals were investigated fully before the u.s launched a counterattack of their own and the malfunction was discovered and, and and all was well after that but only a couple of years later in 1967 a massive solar flare knocked out the BMUs, uh, the, the the systems i was talking about before that uh, monitored uh, uh missiles from uh, from afar up in Greenland and uh, and uh, Alaska and whatever else uh, they were knocked out by this uh, by this solar flare and the US didn't realize what had knocked out these systems they thought that the Soviets were jamming their communications in readiness for a nuclear attack of their own again much like what they thought in 1961 and so they prepared nuclear bombs for attack again 
Fortunately for the world, however, NORAD was made aware of the solar flare in time uh, to, to avert, you know, a proper military mobilisation, and the crisis was averted. Now, the only reason this crisis was averted, really, was because of the studies that scientists had already done into solar flares and our awareness of their effects on electronic communication at the time. So it was essentially a group of weather forecasters that presented NORAD with evidence that it was a solar flare and not USSR chicanery uh, that had knocked out their systems. And so these these meteorologists effectively were the ones who, who at, the, at this point saved the world. So the next time you go to blame, blame the weather reporters for the week of rain they're forecasting, remember that it is a damn sight better than a rain of nuclear hellfire. Anyway, we move out of the 60s and into the 70s. Now, we had a quieter time in the 70s, thanks to things like, you know, the strategic arms limitation talks, Nixon visiting Moscow and the Helsinki Accords. There there was generally just a a better sort of attitude. There was things just generally a little bit more chilled out between the US and the USSR there. It meant that, you you know, you didn't have blokes at at NORAD crapping their dacks as soon as a flock of Turkish swans took flight, which is, you know, obviously an improvement. But, you know, all the same, despite the, you know, Despite this detente, there's still a fair bit of bad energy between the US and the USSR here. And, and, you know, the Vietnam War is raging on. There's the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, which brought the US and the USSR into proxy conflict. And and the two superpowers, they still hate each other's guts and they're still bristling with nukes. So even though it's less tense than the early 60s, it's still still not looking too good, you know. And it's actually during this uh, Arab-Israeli War in 1973 that we had another very close call, actually, after a, a ceasefire that the UN had broke it, it began to fall apart. Now, the US was supporting Israel while the USSR was supporting uh, this Arab coalition of uh, Egyptian, Syrian and, and other other forces from uh, from that part of the world. And both powers, both the US and the USSR, they're moving troops and hardware around in the region. But when a report came in that the Soviets were about to step up their presence and intervene on behalf of the Egyptians after this ceasefire was broken, things started getting very, very serious in Washington. Very serious indeed. Now, Nixon is in the middle of the Watergate scandal at this at this point. So he's not around to, you know, talk turkey with Brezhnev and try to try to figure things out between the two leaders here. Uh, and because of this, Henry Kissinger upgrades DEFCON to three. The Soviets notice this, of course, and they start making preparations of their own in response. So the tension is really beginning to ratchet up. It's really starting to mount once again. And this means that it is an absolute disaster when, on the 25th of October 1973, some of the mechanics who are working on the alarm systems at an Air Force base in Michigan accidentally set off the alarms. So with DEFCON at three, the bomber crews, after hearing the alarm, they scramble to get ready. They jump into their planes that are obviously laden down with nukes and they start up the engine, start revving ready to go down the runway once again. Thankfully, cooler heads prevail and the pilots are ordered to stand down when they realise it's just a mistake. But still, imagine being that mechanic. And never mind a nuclear war, you'd get a nuclear tongue lashing from your boss after that stuff up. Jeez, bloody hell, I don't envy whoever that person was. Anyway, the most ridiculous close call we had during the 70s actually happened in 1979, when tension between the US and the USSR was increasing yet again. As I say, this is what's referred to as, as sort of the Second Cold War. It never really ended, but uh, this is a point at which uh, tensions began to mount. And a lot of this was to do with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. But even before that, uh, you know, in, in 1979, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's the, the war in Afghanistan and, and all sorts of other things that are meaning that the US and the USSR just really aren't getting on with each other. Anyway, this specific incident, it took place on the 9th of November, 1979, just before 9 o'clock in the morning. And it was at NORAD HQ, where all of the computers 
started going mental. They started going mental, indicating there was a full-scale nuclear strike aimed right at the US coming from the Soviet Union. So, of course, the US military swings into action. It readies its missiles, its bombers are ready to go. Uh, you know, the, it informs the, the office of the president that a response is needed within seven minutes, because that's the time it's going to take for these missiles, these, these Russian missiles to arrive. They even went as far as launching the President's National Emergency Airborne Command Post, which is basically an enormous plane from which the President can you know, still send out orders. But Jimmy Carter wasn't even on board when the plane took off because they couldn't find him. Anyway, all these missiles, they're ready to be fired. All these bombers, they're champing at the bit at the end of the runway. And the US was ready to obliterate the USSR in a storm of nuclear fire. And if you'll believe it, all of this, all of this preparation, all, these re- all the readiness from, from go to woe took place in just six minutes goes to show just how tense and serious the political climate of the day was when uh, you know the the nation is fully armed ready and mobilized to uh, with a nuclear strike within six minutes however after six minutes had passed there's not been any indication of this swarm of Soviet missiles. The US are, are looking at the, the data from their satellites that they've got spinning around in space there, and they can't find I can't can't find hide nor hair of these supposed missiles. So people at NORAD they start talking about maybe is this uh, is this just maybe a, a false alarm? Is this maybe you know one of them things that we've sort of stuffed up a little bit again? And after confirming with other advanced warning systems that there were no inbound missiles, the US they stood down they stood down all the missiles, all the bombers, and they tried to figure out what had gone wrong. And and again, you're not going to believe what happened here. Why? Why the uh, you know the, the 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 missiles were put on on full alert. The bombers are ready to go down the runway. Unbelievably, someone had loaded a training simulation tape into a computer somewhere in the NORAD system, one that was designed to simulate a full-scale nuclear attack coming in from the Soviets. And this training exercise, right, had been loaded into an active NORAD computer. And so the whole system went berserk because it thought it was real. Now, I don't know if they ever found out who accidentally loaded the tape uh, into the computer, but but when, when talking about the incident, a senior U.S. State Department advisor, whose name is Marshall Shulman, had quite a, quite a chilling truth to share with us. This was in a document that was only declassified very recently. He said, that the, he said this, <clears throat> False alerts of this kind are not a rare occurrence. There is a complacency about handling them that disturbs me. So today in this episode, we're talking about some of the near misses, some of the close shaves that happened in, in the world of, of nuclear politics and, 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 and everything like that during the Cold War. We might not even know some of the, some of the really close calls that, that were never made public. Anyway, interestingly, an interesting effect of this, uh, of this, of this near miss was uh, in order to prevent this sort of thing from ever happening again, they actually built a, a separate NORAD training facility with computers that would, were completely isolated from the rest of the NORAD network just so the same mistake wouldn't happen again. But even then, it sort of did again and again. You know, even before the end of 1980, NORAD had multiple false alarms set off by what they called faulty computer chips. So clearly, they didn't have all their ducks in a row there. Anyway, we move out of the 70s now and into the 80s. And in, it was in 1983 that our second hero here, uh, uh, Stanislav Petrov, averted an all out global nuclear war. And this one came a lot closer to happening. To most of the others we've discussed, at the end of at the end of this entire thing here, it all came down to one man's gut feeling. That is what stopped a nuclear apocalypse: just the feeling that Stanislav Petrov had in his gut. 
On the 26th of September, 1983, Petrov is working in a bunker that oversaw the uh, the, the Soviets' o- early warning uh, missile defense systems, basically, basically their version of BMUs, right? His job was pretty simple uh, when you boil it down. He wasn't a particularly high, he was a lieutenant colonel. He wasn't a particularly high-ranking officer in uh, in the you know USSR military there. His job was, as I say, very simple. All he had to do was watch for any incoming missiles from the US and then warn his superiors so they could retaliate as quickly as possible. And he did this by activating a, a, a computer that would then send through the signals and, and it would go on from there. Now, at this stage, at this stage in the Cold War, I mean, well, actually, more broadly speaking, even nuclear weapons have some pretty fascinating implications for both the political and the military worlds. We, we talked a little bit before about brinkmanship and, and, and the concept of mutually assured destruction. And at this point, with tensions so high between the US and the USSR, both nations had in place what is called a second strike capability. So this is what's important about our, our situation right here in 1983, the, the idea of a second strike. In other words, these nations would be able to re- launch a retaliatory attack even if they were wiped out themselves, even if they weren't the ones to launch a preemptive strike and, and wipe the other one off the face of the earth they would be able to retaliate with, again, a devastating second strike of their own. This is usually done through putting nuclear weapons on submarines, which, of course, are highly mobile and very secret as to where they are, as well as, you know, nuclear resources that have been strategically placed throughout the globe. The idea was, even if, say, for example, the US uh, launched its, miss- its nuclear arsenal, all its missiles, and and turned all of Russia into a smoking crater, nuclear subs and, and other, you know, allied bits of hardware would then be able to do the same to the United States. So the second strike capability very, very important um, in, in, this, in this concept of mutually assured destruction. And this was the reason behind Petrov's job, to warn of any incoming attacks so a counterattack could be, could be launched immediately, because again, with this idea of mutually assured destruction, why wouldn't you take out whoever just attacked you? This is why This is why we haven't seen the use of nukes in warfare since 1945, because if you launch a nuke of your own against another party with second strike capabilities, which, of course, every self-respecting nuclear nation has, you're signing your own death warrant because you won't be able to blow up all of their nukes before they can blow you up. Nukes are used mainly as a deterrent. They're mainly used as a deterrence tool. It's the threat of their use rather than their use itself that governs the politics of nuclear weapons and is extremely influential today in international relations. And all of this today, even today, it all stems from the way that nukes influenced the politics of the Cold War when two nations knew that the use of their, their nuclear arsenals would spell their own end as well as the, as well as the end of their opponent. But... It was also the only tool they had to prevent the other one from ending them on the spot. So it's, it's I mean, it's, a, it's obviously a very morbid area to look at when you're talking about the ending of a, the end of a civilization. But it's also fascinating to consider the, uh, you know, the political ramifications of of, of nuclear power within uh, within international relations during the Cold War and even today. Anyway, 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 we're getting off track here. We're going back to Petrov now in his bunker, under orders to report any incoming missile attacks, so the USSR can duly respond with a counterattack of their own and thereby fulfill this doctrine of mutually assured destruction, which was very much the dominant political thought at the time. Now, you'll never guess what's going to happen. Of course, while Petrov is there in his bunker, just after midnight on the 26th of September, the computer starts beeping away like mad because it's detected a US nuclear missile speeding towards the USSR. Now, all Petrov should do in this instance is report it press the button on the computer and allow his superiors to respond, which they would then do by following their own pre-established protocol. And this would ultimately lead to a full-scale nuclear exchange and very likely the end of the world as we know it, 
which would not leave very many people feeling fine. Thank you very much, Michael Stipe. Petrov, however, he stops and he thinks about it for just a minute. He knows that if he presses this button on the computer, it will be irreversible. He knows that it will bring about a nuclear apocalypse, and he knows that he 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 is the link in the chain that can prevent this from happening. So he stops and thinks about it, and he says to himself, why only one missile? Wouldn't the U.S. launch hundreds and hundreds of nukes at, 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 all at once to, to try to hamstring any USSR counterattack to make sure they knocked us out for good? And on top of that, on top of that, Petrov doesn't fully trust the automated detection system, which had had some problems in the past. So, in contradiction of his orders, which, which of course, let's remember, in the USSR was no joke, Petrov did something incredibly bright, very, very courageous indeed. He did absolutely nothing. It's got to be amongst the bravest nothings anyone has ever done, to be honest, because he's gambling not only with his own life, but the fate of his nation as a superpower in the Cold War. And it gets worse because a short time later, after he's made this decision to do nothing, the system then detects four more missiles and still Petrov stands there and does nothing. He's got all the technicians, he's got all the people working under him, looking at him, waiting for to see what his response is as the computers are blaring these warnings at him, and he stands there, and he does nothing. He knows that reporting these missiles will start an unstoppable chain of events that would escalate the situation to global thermonuclear war, and he just isn't prepared to do it. He later talked about the fact that it wasn't just his scepticism of only five missiles being launched, he said... That when put on the spot like that and forced to make a decision as to whether to begin the Third World War, he refused to be the one to do so. Apparently, apparently, the computer system had no room for shades of grey. Either he pressed the button to effectively launch a counterattack, or he didn't. It was as simple as that. And he had no hard evidence. No hard evidence whatsoever. Just a gut feeling that something wasn't right. And on top of this gut feeling, he had... The moral determination not to doom a planet to the scourge of nuclear hellfire. So he does nothing. And the minutes pass and the computers are screaming that these missiles are coming closer and closer and he still does nothing. But soon, after some minutes, after this time has passed here, it emerges that the alarm was, in fact, a false one. Because... There is no other evidence to suggest that these missiles are coming in. No missiles are detected on ground-based radar, and no attack, of course, ends up happening at all. Petrov's gut feeling is vindicated, and he reports the false alarm to his superiors. He's grilled intensely by all of those above him, and eventually congratulated for his behaviour, although never rewarded for it. It turns out, interestingly, it turns out that the computers misread... This is not a joke. The computers misread sunlight on some clouds as missiles. So it's just as well Petrov didn't pull the trigger and inform his superiors of what the computers were telling him. Because, I mean, look, never mind tilting at windmills. How about nuking cirrus clouds, mate? Jeez. Anyway, in standing by and doing nothing, Stanislav Petrov should go down in history as a courageous man who defied the political climate of the times and averted a world-ending nuclear event by sticking to his moral determination not to be the one to start the Third World War. Anyway, there have been a couple of other close shaves since Petrov in his bunker, which we'll cover off very quickly before closing out the show here. 
Uh, just actually, the next one just came a month later. A, mil- uh, a NATO military exercise called Able Archer 83, which uh, actually simulated a DEFCON 1 nuclear strike. Uh, the, the Soviets got wind of this. They thought that it was a ruse. They thought that the uh, this, this so-called exercise was actually a way for uh, the US and NATO to disguise the fact that they were getting a, 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 la- a nuclear launch you know, imminently ready. Uh, and, and they themselves, the Soviets, got themselves ready as well. But thankfully, the exercise ended before the USSR took any firm action. But I tell you what, all these idiots, they are cutting it pretty bloody fine with their pissing contests. I'll tell you what. Anyway, the last major nuclear scare took place in 1995. And I think, broadly speaking, it's quite emblematic of the whole ridiculous state of affairs surrounding nuclear weapons and the, you know their consequences in international politics, especially in the wake of the Cold War here. On the 25th of January 1995, a Russian early warning system detected a missile being launched from the coast of Norway. And this missile, according to the Russian data, it matched the flight patterns and the speed of a US Trident missile, the ones that they usually use to carry a nuclear payload. Now, of course, the Russians, they leap into action. They report the launch all the way up the chain of command, all the way up to Boris Yeltsin himself, the president of Russia, who was handed an active nuclear briefcase so that he could decide how to respond. This is the only example in, in recorded history of a nuclear briefcase being activated in ready for, readiness for an attack. The Russians calculated that the missile could reach them in 10 minutes, and so Yeltsin had that much time to make up his mind about what to do. The Russians, they're continuing to monitor and track this, this missile, this, this, you know, this rocket that's been blown up into the air there for eight minutes with the Russian military on high alert, ready to respond. Even though the Cold War is over, the Russians are still not big fans of the United States and it's not out of the question that there could have, there could have been some kind of nuclear exchange, even at this late point in, uh, you know, in history here. But after these eight minutes had passed, it became increasingly clear that the missile, after all, wasn't headed towards Russia, was heading out to sea, and so the briefcase was whew, deactivated, and once again, nuclear war was avoided. The missile landed near Svalbard, uh, to the north of Norway shortly afterwards, and the crisis was over. But what, I hear you ask, was this missile doing, and why had it been launched in the first place? Well, I'll tell you. It had been launched in a joint effort between the United States and Norway, and it was packed full of scientific equipment designed to study the Aurora Borealis. Yep. Do you know what makes it even better? Do you know what makes this story even better? The Norwegians had notified all of the nearby countries, including Russia, that they would be launching this rocket so that they, everyone would know that there would be nothing to, to, to worry about. They explained what was going on, when it was going to happen, why it was happening, all that sort of stuff. They gave them all this information. And Russia had received this notification, had taken on board the, uh, the information, and, if you'll believe it, hadn't bothered to pass it on to their radar operators. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of, of course, not only Vasily Arkhipov and Stanislav Petrov, but as well a brief overview of uh, the very, very close shaves we've had when it's when it comes to uh, you know a nuclear Armageddon there. But 
In spite of it all, we're still here, so, you know, at least it wasn't a total disaster. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with the show, please do. Halfhousehistory.net, there's a contact form. You can get in touch. Send me an email with uh, feedback or or content idea suggestions for uh, for topics, which uh, is what Zach Reese did. Uh, he got in touch and asked for an episode on the Manhattan Project, which I was reading about and might do in the future, but that was incidentally what led me to read about nukes in general and then, of course, into the Cold War and some of the near misses we had in this uh, during this whole time there. So if you want to be like Zach and or any... any number of other uh, other listeners I have please do get in touch and send me an email and of course a very special thank you to all of the Patreon members, all the people on Patreon uh, who are chucking me money every month, I, I, I can't say how much it means to me, thank you so much to all the people who are uh who are you know covering me in those dollar dollar bills? Uh, yeah, thanks so much. It's it's amazing of you. Anyway, we're going to close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, Reddit historian Hamza Boy has a question for us here. Of course, we've talked a little bit about well, not a little bit. We've talked a lot about the Cold War this week, and so Hamza Boy wants to know: Did global warming stop the Cold War? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.